Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon, Mormon discussions, discussions and its lineup of great, great programs. programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Treasure Digging, with Joseph Smith and John Steinbeck. As I record this episode, it is October 24th, 2018. There is a full moon riding high in the sky, and I thought it might be a good time to talk about something seasonal, something Halloweenish, something marginally creepy, and something that has to do both with Mormonism as well as with literature. First, a little bit about me and Mormonism. As you know, I was baptized in 1978 and immediately became an ardent student of Mormonism. I lived through the 1980s in the LDS Church when a seismic shift was occurring in information that was coming forward about the early days of Joseph Smith. And by the early days, I mean the Joseph Smith that existed prior to the organization of the church in 1830 and prior to his assuming his prophetic mantle as the leader and president of the LDS Church. I mean the Joseph Smith who was a farm boy in upstate New York who worked very hard on his father's farm and engaged with other men in his community in the practice of treasure digging. The idea was in the air that there were numerous treasures buried in the earth, perhaps put there in days gone by by pirates or other individuals who might have a treasure that they wanted to hide in order to keep it safe, and that through some calamity or other, the pirates who buried the treasure either got killed before they could retrieve the treasure or managed to forget exactly where it was that the treasure was hidden. These treasures in the earth were protected by guardian spirits, and oftentimes the spirits that protected these treasures were in fact the spirits of the men who buried them in the first place and their spirits came back to protect the treasure that they could no longer get in mortality. And in order to obtain them, first, an individual with special insight and ability had to be retained in order to locate the place where the treasure was hidden, and then certain rituals had to be performed with exactness in order to get past the spirit or spirits that were guarding the treasure. Because unless these rituals were performed with exactness, the treasure would not be able to be located and usually it was considered that the treasure would slip away 
into the earth. These treasures could actually move in the earth and move away from the people who were digging for it with the result that in spite of all their digging, they didn't find any treasure. So what would happen is that Joseph Smith, who was reputed to have this ability to locate treasure, would lead a group of men by night to the place where Joseph Smith said the treasure was hidden and certain rituals were performed in order to get past the guardian spirits. And all the men dug as fast as they could into the earth with the result that no treasure was located. It did not impugn Joseph Smith's ability to find treasure. Rather, it could be blamed upon the fact that the rituals were not performed correctly. And therefore, when the men went to dig, the treasure itself slipped away into the earth. In this way, failed treasure digs could be blamed not on the person locating the treasure, but on the spirits who protected the treasure and kept it from being found. As I say, in the 1980s, information was coming forward that Joseph Smith led a number of these expeditions with the men in his neighborhood to find treasure. And the instrument that Joseph Smith used to locate the treasure was a peepstone, the same instrument that Joseph Smith would later use to translate the Book of Mormon, a treasure that he found in the ground that was protected by a guardian spirit named Moroni. Well, all of this information was very troubling to the LDS Church, and therefore their response was denying any such information. They did not see it as a positive thing that the founder and first prophet of the LDS Church would be engaged in such activities and therefore simply denied it. One such article appeared the year before the 1980s started. It was 1979. It was the September issue of the Enzyme magazine. And in that issue is a lengthy article written by the historian Dean Jesse, in which he seeks to obliquely counter claims of Joseph Smith's early money digging. The title of the article is Among Historians, and it talks about the different versions of Joseph Smith that are presented by critics of the church in the early days versus members of the church in the early days, and contrasts the negative from the former with the positive from the latter. I will just read a couple of paragraphs from this article so you can get the flavor of how it was the church was trying to deny that Joseph Smith practiced money digging in his early years. A point of focus in the early published reports was the personality and character of Joseph Smith. The prophet noted that rumor with her thousand tongues was all the time employed in circulating falsehoods about my father's family and about myself. Among the earliest descriptions of Joseph were those published by Abner Cole over the name of Obadiah Dogberry, editor of the Palmyra, New York, Reflector. Using the E.B. Grandin Press, the Moonlighting Coal gained unauthorized access to the Book of Mormon manuscript in 1829 and actually published extracts from it in his newspaper until forced to desist by Joseph Smith. That much is a familiar story to most members of the church. The article goes on, though. Miffed at the discovery and forcible discontinuance of his secret enterprise, Cole sought to defame Joseph Smith and his work. He described the prophet in degrading terms and explained the Book of Mormon as a deception growing out of the family's use of peep stones to dig for hidden treasure guarded by evil spirits. Yes, that's exactly what it says here in the September 1979 Enzyme article. And even though this characterization of Joseph Smith is poo-pooed in this article, nevertheless, these are the facts that the LDS Church has finally had to come to grips with and acknowledge and admit 
in their Gospel Topics essays. Once again, Abner Cole described the prophet in degrading terms and explained the Book of Mormon as a deception, growing out of the family's use of peep stones to dig for hidden treasure guarded by evil spirits. He claimed that Joseph concocted the idea of finding a book from the suggestion of a vagabond conjurer named Walters, who had participated with the Smiths in their digging ventures. The article goes on, Cole laid the groundwork for the theme of deception, indolence, and irreligion that was to characterize descriptions of Joseph Smith in subsequent non-Mormon writings. But while early newspapers labeled Joseph Smith as an unprincipled character, oh, and as a money digger who used peepstones, but while early newspapers labeled Joseph Smith as an unprincipled character, it was Eber D. Howe's book, Mormonism Unveiled, in 1834 that canonized that theme for future non-Mormon discussions. Now notice that characterizing Joseph Smith and his family as seeking for treasure with peepstones is considered at this time by this article and by the church as something that is degrading, as something that makes him an unprincipled character. And therefore, of course, they're going to deny it that Joseph Smith ever practiced treasure digging with peepstones. Joseph Smith was not degraded, he was not unprincipled, and therefore he could not have participated in this activity. Flash forward to 2018, and now the church is saying, yes, he did participate in this activity, but it wasn't an unprincipled activity, it was not a degrading activity. Instead, this is just what folks did up in Joseph Smith's neck of the woods for fun and entertainment. It was a common practice, nothing degrading, nothing unprincipled about it. My how things change. Going on with the article. It was Eber D. Howe's book, Mormonism Unveiled, in 1834 that canonized that theme for future non-Mormon discussions. Howe's work was the culmination of efforts of a Kirtland, Ohio anti-Mormon committee spearheaded by an embittered ex-Mormon, Philastus Hurlbut, cut off from the church for immorality. So that's the poisoning the well on Philastus Hurlbut. But what Philastus Hurlbut did was he went back to Joseph Smith's neck of the woods. He talked to his neighbors. This is just 1834. He goes back there. He finds people who knew Joseph Smith and his family, has them sign affidavits, and a lot of these affidavits mention the money digging, the treasure digging, the peep stones. So it's very important before we even get to what's in the affidavits that we show that Philastus Hurlbut cannot be trusted because he's an anti-Mormon. No, he's an embittered ex-Mormon cut off from the church for immorality. Who's going to trust anything that he has to say or who's going to trust the affidavits that he gets from Joseph Smith's neighbors, the ones who actually knew Joseph Smith when he was younger. Skipping down a number of paragraphs in this article, although historical studies of Joseph Smith present two highly contradictory pictures of him, the answer to the question, what was the Mormon prophet really like, is not simply a matter of choosing between what may seem to be equally valid viewpoints. In an age indifferent to facts and research, when tests of reliability were not a part of scholarly decorum and historical tastes were not so discriminating, the Hurlbut affidavits found easy acceptance. However, as more scientific historical procedures developed and writings of the past were re-evaluated, once acceptable themes lost their credibility. And you can see here how this article uses a lot of words to say that the Hurlbut affidavits are not credible without actually ever getting around to any details or facts to explain why they're not credible. Finally, this paragraph. Concentrating more specifically on the Hurlbut affidavits, which we have to concentrate on because they talk about Joseph Smith money digging, 
Concentrating more specifically on the Hurlbut affidavits, Richard L. Anderson, who was a professor at BYU, in another important study showed from their similar word usage and organization how the mind of the crusading Hurlbut was superimposed over all that had been written. He also demonstrated, that's Richard L. Anderson, also demonstrated that the charges of laziness and occupational money digging were contradicted by the labors and activities of the family. After separating vague generalities from first-hand experience and analyzing the latter, he pointed out that Hurlbut not only had a hand in writing the affidavits, but very possibly fabricated some of the information. So I've taken this much time with this article from the September 1979 Enzyme so that you can understand that when I say that information about Joseph Smith's money digging was coming to the fore and into the public and LDS discourse during the 1980s and apparently even a little bit before the 1980s, I am not leading you astray. And when I say that the church was busy denying, discounting, and poo-pooing that kind of information, I am also telling you exactly the way it was. And now in reading this article, we can see the reason that the church reacted in this way, because they did not see money digging by Joseph Smith as a simple, harmless preoccupation on his part, something that was common in folk magic that basically everybody in his community was doing as it is presented today, but rather they saw it as degrading and unprincipled to engage in this conduct. And that is why they fought against it with every fiber of their being until the information became so overwhelming, so obvious, so prevalent that the church has now had to admit to it in their own essays on the church website. Here it is, Gospel Topics section under the essay titled, Book of Mormon Translation. Here's what the church says today on its own website and compare this with what we just read the church saying back in 1979 in its official magazine. The other instrument that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon, the other instrument which Joseph Smith discovered in the ground years before he retrieved the gold plates was a small oval stone or seer stone. As a young man during the 1820s, Joseph Smith, like others in his day, used a seer stone to look for lost objects and buried treasure. As Joseph grew to understand his prophetic calling, he learned that he could use this stone for the higher purpose of translating scripture. So here, once again, we can clearly see the phenomenon that has been described before on this program as the anti-Mormon lies of yesterday, 1979, are now the admitted Mormon truths of today, 2018. So that's the first part of the introduction. The second part of the introduction is about me and literature. Now, back when I was in high school, I was a kid who avoided at all costs reading the books that were assigned to be read in class. I lived by cliff notes. And on those rare occasions when I absolutely had to read a book with any literary value whatsoever, I was dragged kicking and screaming to it. But in the last 10 years, I have reversed myself on the subject of literature and have immersed myself in various works of literature, from Shakespeare to Milton to Aeschylus, in older works of literature to more recent works of literature, including Melville and Dickens and Steinbeck. Now, John Steinbeck wrote a number of books, and at this point, I think I've read the majority. He wrote several books 
which were really too long to be called short stories, but too short to be called novels, and therefore they are sometimes called short novels of John Steinbeck. Not too many years ago, I got a collection of these in one volume, which contains six of his short novels, Tortilla Flat, The Moon is Down, The Red Pony, Of Mice and Men, Cannery Row, and The Pearl. Now, I expect most of you have heard of most, if not all, of these titles and have probably read at least one, if not more, of these short novels of John Steinbeck because they are regularly assigned as reading, or at least they were back when I was in high school and junior high, regularly assigned as reading to the class. I had somehow managed to avoid reading Tortilla Flat, and when I finally got around to reading it not too long ago, I wondered what had taken me so long. It is a delightful short novel full of rich characters, and the basic idea of the book is that there are a number of characters in this town called Tortilla Flat. Danny is the central character around which all the other secondary characters orbit. All of these characters have one thing in common, which is basically they were what would have been called at the time bums. They did not work. They avoided work whenever possible, and any money they ever got went to wine, which they generally shared among each other. Danny has inherited a house, and he allows all of his other friends to sleep at his house. So basically, there's a bunch of bums sleeping at Danny's house, but because Danny has been so kind to them, to allow them to sleep and have this roof over their heads, Danny is the hero of the story, and Danny is the character in the story toward whom the other characters have strong emotional attachments and feelings of affection. Now the question that you're probably asking yourself is, what does Joseph Smith's treasure digging and John Steinbeck's Tortilla Flat have in common? Well, that is what this podcast tonight is about. As I read through Tortilla Flat and came to chapter 8, there is a wonderful section in it that talks about these characters engaging in treasure digging. And even though Tortilla Flat is written in the early 20th century, as opposed to the Book of Mormon coming forth in the early 19th century, and even though Tortilla Flat is placed on the coast of California, as opposed to the Book of Mormon, which was produced over toward the eastern seaboard in upstate New York, the similarities between the stories caught my fancy, and I wanted to share them with you tonight. So at this point, I'm going to be reading from Chapter 8 of Tortilla Flat. I'm not going to be reading the entire chapter. I'm just going to be reading the pages that deal with this expedition for treasure digging, and I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did when I read it. The chapter begins with the return of the character named Big Joe Portigee from the war. This would be World War One. He's been in the army for a couple of years. He finally gets back to Tortilla Flat. And I'm going to pick up the story here. Speaking of Big Joe Portigee, the Portigee, he's referred to as Big Joe Portigee and the Portigee, the Portigee liked the Monterey Jail. It was a place to meet people. If he stayed there long enough, all his friends were in and out. The time passed quickly. He was a little sad when he had to go, but his sadness was tempered with the knowledge that it was very easy to get back again. He combed the streets for his old friends, Pylon and Danny and Pablo, and could not find them. The police sergeant said he hadn't booked them for a long time. They must be dead, said the Portuguese. He wandered sadly to Torelli's, but Torelli was not friendly toward men who had neither money nor barterable property and he gave Big Joe little solace. But Torelli did say that Danny had inherited a house, 
on Tortilla Flat, and that all his friends lived there with him. Affection and a desire to see his friends came to Big Joe. In the evening, he wandered up toward Tortilla Flat to find Danny and Pylon. It was dusk as he walked up the street, and on the way, he met Pylon hurrying by in a businesslike way. Aye, Pylon. This is my voice for Big Joe Portigee. Aye, Pylon. I was just coming to see you. Hello, Joe Portigee. That's my voice for Pylon. Hello, Joe Portigee. Pylon was brusque. Where you been? In the army, said Joe. Pylon's mind was not on the meeting. I have to go on. I will go with you, said Joe. Pylon stopped and surveyed him. Don't you remember what night it is? he asked. No. What is it? It is St. Andrew's Eve. Then the Portuguese knew, for this was the night when every Paisano who wasn't in jail wandered restlessly through the forest. This was the night when all buried treasure sent up a faint phosphorescent glow through the ground. There was plenty of treasure in the woods, too. Monterey had been invaded many times in 200 years, and each time valuables had been hidden in the earth. So here we come to this interesting point where a specific night is associated with treasure digging. And we'll go on to see that they go up and so do other people in the town to go treasure digging in the forest just outside of Monterey and Tortilla Flat. And when I read this, I think about the fact that Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith on one particular night of the year, that was September 21st, which is the autumnal equinox. Now, all good Mormons are taught growing up that Moroni first appeared to Joseph Smith September 21st of 1823, and the following day showed him where the treasure, the gold plates, were hidden, but that Joseph Smith was not able to retrieve the treasure immediately. Instead, every year on that same night, Moroni would appear again to Joseph Smith and would have meetings with him and talk with him about the treasure and apparently in some way educate him year by year until he was prepared to retrieve the treasure himself. And what we are taught is that Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith on September 21st of 1823. He waited a full year to talk to Joseph Smith again on September 21st of 1824. Then again, September 21st of 1825. Then again, September 21st of 1826. And finally, September 21st of 1827, when Joseph Smith retrieved the plates. It is interesting that Moroni does not seem to appear to Joseph Smith on any date other than the autumnal equinox. He doesn't appear three months later or six months later. He doesn't appear on Joseph Smith's birthday. He doesn't appear on Christmas. He doesn't appear on Easter. It is always on the autumnal equinox. So it appears there is something significant about the autumnal equinox itself for Moroni to appear to Joseph Smith and to wait a year between his meetings with Joseph Smith to show up on that day. Now, from the magic worldview, the autumnal equinox is a significant time. It is a time for change. It is a time for paradigm shifts. And those include religious paradigm shifts. So what better time of the year for Moroni to appear to Joseph Smith year by year than the autumnal equinox? Because Joseph Smith is going to be the instrument through whom God restores his true church to the earth, which had been lost 
by apostasy. It was a huge religious paradigm shift. And this may be the significance either to Moroni in appearing to Joseph Smith exclusively on that day or looked at another way to Joseph Smith in recasting the visits of Moroni to him year by year on the autumnal equinox. Back to the book Tortilla Flat, St. Andrew's Eve is not the autumnal equinox. Rather, it is a specific night on which everybody knows, every paisano in Tortilla Flat knows, that this is the night for treasure digging. St. Andrew's Day is November 30th, and so St. Andrew's Eve is the night before November 29th. Back to the book. Then the Portuguese knew, for this was the night when every paisano who wasn't in jail wandered restlessly through the forest. This was the night when all buried treasure sent up a faint phosphorescent glow through the ground. There was plenty of treasure in the woods too. Monterey had been invaded many times in 200 years, and each time valuables had been hidden in the earth. The night was clear. Pylon had emerged from his hard daily shell, as he did now and then. He was the idealist tonight, the giver of gifts. This night he was engaged in a mission of kindness. You may come with me, Big Joe Portuguese, but if we find any treasure, I must decide what to do with it. If you do not agree, you can go by yourself and look for your own treasure. Big Joe was not an expert at directing his own affairs. I will go with you, Pylon, he said. I don't care about the treasure. The night came down as they walked into the forest. Their feet found the pine needle beds. Now Pylon knew it for a perfect night. A high fog covered the sky, and behind it the moon shone, so that the forest was filled with a gauze-like light. There was none of the sharp outline we think of as reality. The tree trunks were not black columns of wood, but soft and unsubstantial shadows. The patches of brush were formless and shifting in the queer light. Ghosts could walk freely tonight, without fear of the disbelief of men. For this night was haunted, and it would be an insensitive man who did not know it. Now and then, Pylon and Big Joe passed other searchers who wandered restlessly, zigzagging among the pines. Their heads were down, and they moved silently and passed no greeting. Who could say whether all of them were really living men? Joe and Pylon knew that some were shades of those old folk who had buried the treasures, and who, on St. Andrew's Eve, wandered back to the earth to see that their gold was undisturbed. Pylon wore his saint's medallion, hung around his neck, outside his clothes, so he had no fear of the spirits. Does that sound like Joseph Smith's Jupiter medallion to anyone? Big Joe walked with his fingers crossed in the holy sign. Although they might be frightened, they knew they had protection more than adequate to cope with the unearthly night. The wind rose as they walked and drove the fog across the pale moon like a thin wash of gray watercolor. The moving fog gave shifting form to the forest so that every tree crept stealthily along and the bushes moved soundlessly like great dark cats. The treetops in the wind talked huskily, told fortunes, and foretold deaths. Pylon knew it was not good to listen to the talking of the trees. No good ever came of knowing the future, and besides, this whispering was unholy. He turned the attention of his ears from the trees talking. He began a zigzag path through the forest 
and Big Joe walked beside him like a great, alert dog. Lone, silent men passed them and went on without a greeting, and the dead passed them noiselessly and went on without a greeting. The fog siren began its screaming on the point far below them, and it wailed its sorrow for all the good ships that had drowned on the iron reef and for all those others that would sometime die there. Pylon shuddered and felt cold, although the night was warm. He whispered a Hail Mary under his breath. They passed a gray man who walked with his head down and who gave them no greeting. An hour went by, and still Pylon and Big Joe wandered as restlessly as the dead who crowded the night. Suddenly Pylon stopped. His hand found Big Joe's arm. Do you see? He whispered. Where? Right ahead there. Yes, I think so. It seemed to Pylon that he could see a soft pillar of blue light that shone out of the ground ten yards ahead of him. Big Joe, he whispered, find two sticks about three or four feet long. I do not want to look away. I might lose it. He stood like a pointing dog while Big Joe scurried off to find the sticks. Pylon heard him break two small dead limbs from a pine tree, and he heard the snaps as Big Joe broke the twigs from his sticks. And still Pylon stared at the pale shaft of nebulous light. So faint it was that sometimes it seemed to disappear altogether. Sometimes he was not sure he saw it at all. He did not move his eyes when Big Joe put the sticks in his hands. Pylon crossed the sticks at right angles and advanced slowly holding the cross in front of him. As he came close, the light seemed to fade away, but he saw where it had come from, a perfectly round depression in the pine needles. Pylon laid his cross over the depression and he said, all that lies here is mine by discovery. Go away, all evil spirits. Go away, spirits of men who buried this treasure in nomen patris et filius et spiritu sancti. And then he heaved a great sigh and sat down on the ground. We have found it, O oh my friend Big Joe, he cried. For many years I have looked, and now I have found it. Let's dig, said Big Joe. But Pylon shook his head impatiently. When all the spirits are free, when even to be here is dangerous, you are a fool, Big Joe. We will sit here until morning, and then we will mark the place, and tomorrow night we will dig. No one else can see the light now that we have covered it with the cross. Tomorrow night there will be no danger. The night seemed more fearful now that they sat in the pine needles, but the cross sent out a warmth of holiness and safety, like a little bonfire on the ground. Like a fire, however, it only warmed the front of them. Their backs were to the cold and evil things that wandered about in the forest. Pylon got up and drew a big circle around the whole place, and he was inside when he closed the circle. Let no evil thing cross this line in the name of the most holy Jesus, he chanted. Then he sat down again. Both he and Big Joe felt better. They could hear the muffled footsteps of the weary wandering ghosts. They could see the little lights that glowed from the transparent forms as they walked by. But their protecting line was impregnable. Nothing bad from this world or from any other world could cross into the circle. What are you going to do with the money? Big Joe asked. Pylon looked at him in contempt. You have never looked for treasure, Big Joe Portigee, 
for you do not know how to go about it. I cannot keep this treasure for myself. If I go after it, intending to keep it, then the treasure will dig itself down and down like a clam in the sand, and I shall never find it. No, that is not the way. I am digging this treasure for Danny. Okay, now at this point in the story, two elements of Joseph Smith's treasure digging come to my mind. The first is the idea about the treasure being able to slip away in the earth unless the correct rituals are performed. And the second is that the motive for retrieving the treasure cannot be one of personal greed. You remember the story that Joseph Smith told on one of the occasions he went to see Moroni at the Hill Cumorah and Joseph Smith wanted to get the gold plates in order to get the money from the gold plates so he could relieve his family from poverty and as a result Moroni read his mind and gave him a shock and sent him flying backward on his keister and told him he could not get the plates for personal gain only because what was written on them was of value and scripture. So let me read this part again really quick and then we'll go on. You have never looked for treasure, Big Joe Portigee, for you do not know how to go about it. I cannot keep this treasure for myself. If I go after it, intending to keep it, then the treasure will dig itself down and down like a clam in the sand, and I shall never find it. No, that is not the way. I am digging this treasure for Danny. All the idealism in Pylon came out then. He told Big Joe how good Danny was to his friends. And we do nothing for him, he said. We pay no rent. Sometimes we get drunk and break the furniture. We fight with Danny when we are angry with him, and we call him names. Oh, we are very bad, Big Joe. And so all of us, Pablo and Jesus Maria and the pirate, and I talked and planned. We are all in the woods tonight looking for treasure. And the treasure is to be for Danny. He is so good, Big Joe. He is so kind, and we are so bad. But if we take a great sack of treasure to him, then he will be glad. It is because my heart is clean of selfishness that I can find this treasure. Won't you keep any of it? Big Joe asked, incredulous. Not even for a gallon of wine? Pylon had no speck of the bad pylon in him this night. No, not one scrap of gold, not one little brown penny. It is all for Danny, every bit. Joe was disappointed. I walked all this way and I won't even get a glass of wine for it, he mourned. When Danny has the money, Pylon said delicately, it may be that he will buy a little wine. Of course, I shall not suggest it, for this treasure is Danny's, but I think maybe he might buy a little wine. And then, if you were good to him, you might get a glass. Big Joe was comforted, for he had known Danny a long time. He thought it possible that Danny might buy a great deal of wine. The night passed on over them. The moon went down and left the forest in muffled darkness. The fog siren screamed and screamed. During the whole night, Pylon remained unspotted. He preached a little to Big Joe, as recent converts are likely to do. It is worthwhile to be kind and generous, he said. Not only do such actions pile up a house of joy in heaven, but there is, too, a quick reward here on earth. One feels a golden warmth glowing like a hot enchilada in one's stomach. The Spirit of God clothes one in a coat as soft as camel's hair. I have not always been a good man, Big Joe Portigee. I confess it freely. Big Joe knew it perfectly well. I have been bad, Pylon continued ecstatically. He was enjoying himself thoroughly. 
I have lied and stolen. I have been lecherous. I have committed adultery and taken God's name in vain. Me too, said Big Joe happily. And what was the result, Big Joe Portigee? I have had a mean feeling. I have known I would go to hell, but now I see that the sinner is never so bad that he cannot be forgiven. Although I have not yet been to confession, I can feel that the change in me is pleasing to God, for His grace is upon me. If you too would change your ways, Big Joe, if you would give up drunkenness and fighting and those girls down at Dora Williams' house, you too might feel as I do. But Big Joe had gone to sleep. He never stayed awake very long when he was not moving about. The grace was not quite so sharp to Pylon when he could not tell Big Joe about it, but he sat and watched the treasure place while the sky grayed and the dawn came behind the fog. He saw the pine trees take shape and emerge out of obscurity. The wind died down and the little blue rabbits came out of the brush and hopped about on the pine needles. Pylon was heavy-eyed but happy. When it was light, he stirred Big Joe Portigee with his foot. It is time to go to Danny's house. The day has come. Pylon threw the cross away, for it was no longer needed, and he erased the circle. Now, he said, we must make no mark, but we must remember this by trees and rocks. Why don't we dig now? Big Joe asked. And everybody in Tortilla Flat would come to help us, Pylon said sarcastically. They looked hard at the surroundings, saying, Now, there are three trees together on the right and two on the left. That patch of brush is down there, and here is a rock. At last they walked away from the treasure, memorizing the way as they went. At this point in the story, a few things happen during the daytime, which I'm going to skip to get to the following night, when Pylon and Big Joe Portigee go back to retrieve the treasure. At dusk, Joe Portigee returned. He and Pylon conferred in the yard, out of earshot of the house. We will borrow tools from Mrs. Morales, Pylon said. A shovel and pickaxe stand by her chicken house. When it was quite dark, they started. We go to see some girls, friends of Joe Portuguese, Pylon explained. They crept into Mrs. Morales's yard and borrowed the tools. And then, from the weeds beside the road, Big Joe lifted out a gallon jug of wine. Thou hast sold the treasure, Pylon cried fiercely. Thou art a traitor, O dog of a dog. Big Joe quieted him firmly. I did not tell where the treasure was, he said with some dignity. I told like this. We found a treasure, I said, but it is for Danny. When Danny has it, I will borrow a dollar and pay for the wine. Pylon was overwhelmed. And they believed and let you take the wine, he demanded. Well, Big Joe hesitated. I left something to prove I would bring the dollar. Pylon turned like lightning and took him by the throat. What did you leave? Only one little blanket, Pylon, Joe Portigee wailed. Only one? Pylon shook at him, but Big Joe was so heavy that Pylon only succeeded in shaking himself. What blanket, he cried. Say what blanket it was you stole. Big Joe blubbered. Only one of Danny's, only one. He has two. I took only the little tiny one. Do not hurt me, Pylon. The other one was bigger. Danny will get it back when we find the treasure. Pylon whirled him around and kicked him with accuracy and fire. Pig, he said. Dirty, thieving cow. You will get the blanket back or I will beat you to ribbons. Big Joe tried to placate him. I thought how we are working for Danny, he 
whispered. I thought, Danny will be so glad. He can buy a hundred new blankets. Be still, said Pylon. You will get that same blanket back, or I will beat you with a rock. He took up the jug and uncorked it, and drank a little to soothe his frayed sensibilities. Moreover, he drove the cork back, and refused the portagee even a drop. For this theft, you must do all the digging. Pick up those tools, and come with me. Big Joe whined like a puppy, and obeyed. He could not stand against the righteous fury of Pylon. They tried to find the treasure for a long time. It was late when Pylon pointed to three trees in a row. There, he said. They searched about until they found the depression in the ground. There was a little moonlight to guide them, for this night the sky was free of fog. Now that he was not going to dig, Pylon developed a new theory for uncovering treasure. Sometimes the money is in sacks, he said, and the sacks are rotted. If you dig straight down, you might lose some. He drew a generous circle around the hollow. Now, dig a deep trench around, and then we will come up on the treasure. Aren't you going to dig? Big Joe asked. Pylon broke into a fury. Am I a thief of blankets? He cried. Do I steal from the bed of my friend who shelters me? Well, I ain't going to do all the digging, Big Joe said. Pylon picked up one of the pine limbs that only the night before had served as part of the cross. He advanced ominously toward Big Joe Portagee. Thief, he snarled. Dirty pig of an untrue friend. Take up that shovel. Big Joe's courage flowed away, and he stooped for the shovel on the ground. If Joe Portagee's conscience had not been bad, he might have remonstrated. But his fear of Pylon, armed with a righteous cause and a stick of pine wood, was great. Big Joe abhorred the whole principle of shoveling. The line of the moving shovel was unattractive. The end to be gained, that of taking dirt from one place and putting it in another, was, to one who held the larger vision, silly and gainless. A whole lifetime of shoveling could accomplish practically nothing. Big Joe's reaction was a little more simple than this. He didn't like to shovel. He had joined the army to fight and had done nothing but dig. But Pylon stood over him, and the trench stretched around the treasure place. It did no good to profess sickness, hunger, or weakness. Pylon was inexorable, and Joe's crime of the blanket was held against him. Although he whined, complained, held up his hands to show how they were hurt, Pylon stood over him and forced the digging. Midnight came, and the trench was three feet down. The roosters of Monterey crowed. The moon sank behind the trees. At last, Pylon gave the word to move in on the treasure. The bursts of dirt came slowly now. Big Joe was exhausted. Just before daylight, his shovel struck something hard. Aye, he cried, we have it, Pylon. The find was large and square. Frantically, they dug at it in the dark, and they could not see it. Careful, Pylon cautioned. Do not hurt it. The daylight came before they had it out. Pylon felt metal and leaned down in the gray light to see. It was a good-sized square of concrete. On the top was a round brown plate. Pylon spelled out the words on it. United States Geodetic Survey, 1915. Elevation, 600 feet. Pylon sat down in the pit and his shoulders sagged in defeat. No treasure? Big Joe asked plaintively. 
pylon did not answer him. The Portuguese inspected the cement post and his brow wrinkled with thought. He turned to the sorrowing pylon. Maybe we can take this good piece of metal and sell it. Pylon peered up out of his dejection. Johnny Pom Pom found one, he said, with a quietness of great disappointment. Johnny Pom Pom took the metal piece and tried to sell it. It is a year in jail to dig one of these up, Pylon mourned. A year in jail and $2,000 fine. In his pain, Pylon wanted only to get away from this tragic place. He stood up, found a weed in which to wrap the wine bottle, and started down the hill. So that is the story of treasure digging as related by John Steinbeck in Tortilla Flat. The similarities between his account and that of Joseph Smith's early treasure digging days are interesting and several. To me, John Steinbeck manages to capture some of the eeriness and spookiness that would accompany a treasure dig such as those led by Joseph Smith. And it also goes to show that among the less educated class of Americans, money digging, though we know it was popular in the early 19th century in upstate New York in Joseph Smith's neighborhood, was apparently just as popular and just as well known on the other coast of America in Monterey, California, a hundred years later in the early 20th century. Now returning to Joseph Smith's treasure digging, there are not many active Latter-day Saints who are aware of Joseph Smith's treasure digging in his young days. And among that small group of Mormons who do know about Joseph Smith's treasure digging, the majority of those tend to believe that this is something Joseph Smith did only in his youth and that after he became the president of the LDS Church in 1830, he left all of that treasure digging behind him and assumed the mantle of prophet, seer, and revelator. But that is not entirely true, because six years later, in 1836, Joseph Smith was once again involved in a treasure dig. Now, this treasure dig was a little bit different than the ones he led among his neighbors in the 1820s. Instead, in 1836, Joseph Smith is in Kirtland, Ohio, and the church is in debt up to its eyeballs. They have borrowed tons of money from creditors, and those creditors live in New York City. So in 1836, Joseph Smith and some other leaders of the church were getting ready to head east from Ohio to New York to visit their creditors and try and restructure the debt because they were not able to pay it at that point. When lo and behold, a brother in the church with the last name Burgess appears in Ohio in Kirtland and tells Joseph Smith the following remarkable story. Brother Burgess says that he knows a house in Salem, Massachusetts, and that in that house there is a cellar, and hidden in the cellar is a treasure buried under the ground. Burgess tells Joseph Smith that he can recognize that house, that he can take Joseph Smith to it, and that they can find the treasure, and that this treasure can then be used to pay off the church's debts to the creditors in New York. Here's what B.H. Roberts wrote in his Comprehensive History of the Church, Volume 1, page 411. Ebenezer Robinson, Ebenezer Robinson is the member of the church through whom this story comes. Ebenezer Robinson, for many years a faithful and prominent elder in the church 
and at Nauvoo associated with Don Carlos, brother of the prophet, in editing and publishing the Times and Seasons, so that's the background of Ebenezer Robinson, states that the journey to Salem arose from these circumstances. There came to Kirtland a brother by the name of Burgess, that's the guy I was telling you about, there came to Kirtland a brother by the name of Burgess who stated that he had knowledge of a large amount of money secreted in the cellar of a certain house in Salem, Massachusetts, which had belonged to a widow, then deceased, and thought he was the only person who had knowledge of it or of the location of the house. The brethren, accepting the representations of Burgess as true, made the journey to Salem to secure, if possible, the treasure. Burgess, according to Robinson, met the brethren in Salem, but claimed that time had wrought such changes in the town that he could not for a certainty point out the house, and soon left. That's the end of the quote from Comprehensive History of the Church by B. H. Roberts. Now the one fact that we know about this entire story is that no treasure was found, no money was found in the cellar of this house or any other place in Salem, Massachusetts that Joseph Smith and the other leaders of the church used to retire the debt that the church owed to the creditors in New York. But this part here at the end is interesting because what B.H. Roberts says is that Burgess met the brethren in Salem but claimed that time had wrought such changes in the town that he could not for a certainty point out the house and soon left. Now compare this with what Joseph Smith wrote to his wife. This is in August of 1836 that they make the trip to Salem. And on August 19th, 1836, Joseph wrote from Salem to his wife, Emma, in Kirtland, Ohio, and here's what he wrote. Quote, We have found the house since Brother Burgess left us. Very luckily and providentially, as we had one spell, been most discouraged. The house is occupied and it will require much care and patience to rent or buy it. End of quote from the letter of Joseph Smith. So if both of these accounts are correct, Burgess meets them in Salem, Massachusetts, says he can't find the house, he can't remember it, things have grown up so much that he can't positively identify the house. Burgess leaves, and after Brother Burgess leaves, Joseph Smith, through some unstated means in his letter to Emma, very luckily and providentially found the house. Now it's very strange because I don't know exactly how Joseph Smith would find the house after the person who said he knew the house and was probably the only person who knew the house and could identify it, Brother Burgess, had failed to find the house and already left Salem in defeat. Nevertheless, Joseph Smith claims that they did find the house that they're going to try and rent or buy it with obviously the intent of going down into the cellar and digging and finding this money and this treasure, but that never happened. As I say, that's the one thing we know for sure. No treasure was ever found in Salem. Now the first point I want to make is that this is not the kind of treasure dig that Joseph Smith led in the 1820s. This is something where he doesn't put his seer stone or peep stone into the bottom of his top hat, put his face over the top of the hat, and then look and see by some magical means the location of the treasure and where it is that everybody is supposed to dig. No, instead, this appears to come to him through a report from a person named Burgess who claims to know where the treasure is and that it's hidden in the cellar of a certain house in Salem, Massachusetts. And I can hardly fault Joseph Smith 
being in debt up to his eyeballs and hearing that there might be a treasure hidden in the basement or the cellar of a house and wanting to go and see if he could dig it up and find that treasure and use it to pay off church debts. It's hard to find fault with that. In fact, I might have been tempted to do the same thing in the same circumstances. The problem comes, though, when Joseph Smith doesn't just go to the house and try and find it and maybe finds it and then for some reason never is able to get the treasure. The problem is that he involves God in the plan. What do I mean by that? Well, Joseph Smith, after getting to Salem, Massachusetts, receives a revelation from God. Well, what's wrong with receiving a revelation from God, you ask? The problem is that God appears to prophesy that Joseph Smith will be successful in obtaining the treasure that he has gone to Salem to find. And this revelation is enshrined in the current edition of the Doctrine and Covenants under section 111. Yes, that's 111, very easy to remember. It's a very short revelation. It's not quoted very much in the church for some reason, nor are the circumstances around it talked about very much in the church for some reason. And section 111 in the current edition of the Doctrine and Covenants has this introduction. Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet at Salem, Massachusetts, August 6th, 1836. Now remember, this is August 6th of 1836 when he gives this revelation. And it is on August 19th, which is 13 days later, almost two weeks later, that Joseph writes from Salem to his wife Emma saying, Brother Burgess has left us, but we've luckily and providentially found the house where the treasure is buried. So that's August 19th. But on August 6th, almost two weeks before, Joseph Smith receives this revelation. At this time, I'm going back to the introduction to section 111. At this time, the leaders of the church were heavily in debt due to their labors in the ministry hearing that a large amount of money would be available to them in Salem. Now notice that the introduction in the church-produced Doctrine and Covenants does not talk about where they heard it from or where this money is supposed to be located. It keeps it all very general and faith-promoting. Hearing that a large amount of money would be available to them in Salem, the prophet, Sidney Rigdon, Hiram Smith, and Oliver Cowdery traveled there from Kirtland, Ohio to investigate this claim along with preaching the gospel. The brethren transacted several items of church business and did some preaching. When it became apparent that no money was to be forthcoming, they returned to Kirtland. Several of the factors prominent in the background are reflected in the wording of this revelation. So let's talk about this revelation. I'll read it to you. It is not that long. It is only 11 verses long. And the revelation talks about treasure that will be found in Salem. And in some places, it seems to talk about the actual treasure of money that Joseph Smith went there to find. I mean, that is the reason that he went there to Salem, Massachusetts. He's only getting this revelation after arriving in Salem, Massachusetts. So part of this revelation talks about the treasure that he is going to find, which he doesn't end up finding, but he expected to at the time the revelation was given. And it seems he even expected to 13 days later when he wrote the letter to Emma. But the other treasure that's talked about in the revelation appears to be conversions of people, perhaps, in the city. So it talks about both, but I think that even though it talks about conversions of people as a treasure and that there are more treasures than one, it is very clear that it is also talking about the treasure of money, which was the specific reason for making the trip to Salem, Massachusetts. Here's the revelation. I, the Lord your God, see, this is God getting involved. 
I, the Lord your God, am not displeased with your coming this journey, notwithstanding your follies. I have much treasure in this city for you, for the benefit of Zion, and many people in this city, whom I will gather out in due time for the benefit of Zion through your instrumentality. So you see, there is treasure in this city for you for the benefit of Zion, that's to retire the debts, and also, in addition to the treasure and separate from the treasure, many people in this city. The Revelation contemplates these two things as completely different, the treasure and the people. Verse 3, Therefore it is expedient that you should form acquaintance with men in this city, as you shall be led, and as it shall be given you. And it shall come to pass in due time that I will give this city into your hands. Now, I'm not exactly sure when that was supposed to happen. Apparently Salem has not been given into Joseph Smith's hands yet, or to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, at least not up to this point of this recording on October 24th of 2018. Maybe this is something that will have to happen in the future and be put on the perpetual back burner. But this is what the Lord prophesies. And it shall come to pass in due time that I will give this city into your hands, that you shall have power over it, insomuch that they shall not discover your secret parts. And its wealth pertaining to gold and silver shall be yours. So there we have the gold and the silver talking about the treasure, the literal treasure that they came to seek. Concern not yourself about your debts. See, there's the debts that they are concerned about. Concern not yourself about your debts, for I will give you power to pay them. Concern not yourselves about Zion, for I will deal mercifully with her. Tarry in this place and in the regions round about, and the place where it is my will that you should tarry. For the main shall be signalized unto you by the peace and power of my spirit that shall flow unto you. This place you may obtain by hire. Now hang on a second here, okay? Because actually as I'm reading this right now, pieces are starting to fall into place. This place you may obtain by hire. What place is this talking about? Notice verse 8 says, And the place where it is my will that you should tarry for the main shall be signalized unto you by the peace and power of my spirit that shall flow unto you. And then in verse 9 it says, This place you may obtain by hire. What kind of place has to be retained by hire? And that's H-I-R-E, hire. You have to rent it. You have to lease it. This is the house that it's talking about, the house where the treasure is buried. Remember the August 19, 1836 letter that Joseph Smith writes to Emma 13 days after this revelation is received. We have found the house since Brother Burgess left us, very luckily and providentially, as we had one spell been most discouraged. The house is occupied, and it will require much care and patience to rent or buy it. In other words, to hire it. This is what the Lord is talking about through Joseph Smith in section 111. This place you may obtain by hire and inquire diligently concerning the more ancient inhabitants and founders of this city, for there are more treasures than one for you in this city. And this is where the apologists usually go to in this revelation in order to draw focus away from the failed prophecy about finding the literal treasure in this house in Salem, Massachusetts, and then talk about, well, there's other treasures, there's these more spiritual treasures, there's these converts that you can make in this city. 
And the revelation concludes, Therefore be ye as wise as serpents, and yet without sin. And I will order all things for your good, as fast as ye are able to receive them. Amen. Well, this is a very significant revelation. And it sits in the Doctrine and Covenants like a pointing finger of blame. Because it is a revelation that Joseph Smith received from God, in which God tells him, that he is going to be able to find treasure in Salem. And it doesn't appear that the apologist's effort to try and say that the treasure was something completely different than the physical money that they were looking for buried in the cellar of this certain house. Because even though it does talk about other things, it most definitely talks about the literal treasure as well. And in fact, in verses 8 and 9, it sure sounds like the Lord is saying, I will signal to you by the power of the Spirit the place or the house it is that you may obtain by hire. And yet, this never appears to have happened, that a house was never hired, that the place may have been signaled, and and, mm, the place may have been signaled to them. And perhaps that's what Joseph Smith is referring to when he says that providentially and luckily they were able to find the house even after Brother Burgess left, and yet no money was found. No money was forthcoming. No money was able to be used to retire the church's debts. So, with that postscript, we see that Joseph Smith's interest in treasure digging was not exclusively related to his youth in the 1820s, but appears to have continued on into the 1830s and substantially after he became the president and prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so, in honor of the pirates of yesteryear who buried the treasures that Joseph Smith and his companions sought so diligently for and yet never found, we will close out this episode with a song I stumbled upon some years ago about pirates, their love of gold, and how dead men tell no tales. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Shiver my timber, shiver my soul. Yo, ho, ho. There are men whose hearts are as black as coal. Yo, ho, ho. And they sailed their ship across the ocean blue. A bloodthirsty captain and a cutthroat crew. It's as dark a tale as was ever told of the lust for treasure and the love of gold. Shiver my timber, shiver my sides, yo ho ye ho. There are hunters as strong as the wind that flies, yo ho ye ho. And those buccaneers drown their sins in rum. The devil himself would have to call them scum. Every man of war would have killed his mate for a bag of guineas or a piece of eight. 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 A something not right. Many wicked, icky things gonna happen tonight. Hula waka, hula waka, sailor everywhere. Bring me money in the ground, there's murder in the air. Murder in the air. One more. Oh, baby, oh.
set and the anchors wait. There's no turning back from any course that's laid. I went free and fell in the sea. You can bet your boots to get me free. I'm going to go out and 